Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit LifePointPB.com. Good to be with you. I see ushers back there with Bibles in hand, so if you need a Bible this morning, just wave at one of the guys and they'll pass one to you. And when you have a Bible, or if you already have your Bible, two passages of Scripture I encourage you to turn to. Luke chapter 4, that's the primary text we'll look at today. Luke chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start in 2 Corinthians, but we'll spend most of our time in Luke chapter 4. We celebrate the Lord's Supper today. There's these passages that the Lord has just been stirring in my heart. We, uh, as we were away on vacation with the family, we flew uh, in and out of Las Vegas in order to do, uh, we actually did six national parks in six days. Um, some told me it was too ambitious. I now agree with them. It was probably too <laughs> ambitious. But we did it anyway because we were going to do it, so we did it. My children may not appreciate but we did it. Um, and it, it was gorgeous and all. But we flew into Vegas and spent four hours there and it felt like four days um, and looked around a little bit because one of my children likes that sort of thing and um, just all the glitz and the glamour and the lights and the people and the noise and the whole deal and um, and I thought about that as I, I remember looking at how people were in awe they, they you know all the stuff and they're just in awe and they're clamoring and excited and we get out to the national parks and you don't see quite the same expression or response and I'm thinking Lord, isn't it amazing that we take in, in Vegas and get, we're, we're all inspired or we're, or at least some are, um, and we think this is so wonderful and we get out here and what you have actually created that is unbelievable. I mean, really, it's, it, it's indescribable. Lori is a pretty good photographer and so she's trying to catch, but you can't capture it on film. You just can't, what God did. We were in one national park, and the um, the colors of the rock, all the different coloring that God did in the rock, and and how and these just clear divisions, straight line. It reminded me of when we pour sand, two different colors sand in a candle or in a in a container at a wedding, and you know you have this clear line of divider can come between the two colors where they meet. But this is the rock, and I'm just I'm overwhelmed at it, and I thought, Lord. How often do we do this in our life where we take the glitz and the glamour and the thing that man does and we're in awe of that. We think this is wonderful. And we, and yet when we see you or a display of who you are, we just miss it all together. Today, I'm burdened about that in my life and for you that we would not miss the real Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, this passage, I want you to see this with me. 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing, chapter 11. Look at verse 3 with me. Paul said, I'm afraid. It's interesting that Paul would say that. Because you don't think of Paul getting afraid. I mean, he certainly wasn't afraid to go on these adventures and you know, he faced shipwreck and beatings in prison and all kinds of things, stoning. But he says, here's something I'm afraid of. I'm afraid 
that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And then a, a sobering warning. Paul's writing them and he's saying, you know, I came and I preached Christ to you and demonstrated who he is and the gospel and the spirit and all that. But what if someone comes and preaches another Jesus to you? He didn't come and say if somebody comes and preaches the devil to you. He didn't say if somebody comes and preaches a different God to you. He says, no, he just preaches another Jesus. He proclaims another Jesus to you. My concern for us, and sometimes just in the American church, is that I wonder if at times we're proclaiming a different Jesus. So today, before we take the Lord's Supper, we started this several years ago. It dawned on me one Sunday, I, we were having the Lord's Supper, and I was sitting here, and on the front of the table, it says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a quote out of Matthew. Do this in remembrance of me. And I thought, Lord, that's what we do. We remember your death on the cross and that you rose again. And it was like the Holy Spirit said to me, there's a whole lot more to me than just that I died on a cross. And so we began, every time we have the Lord's Supper, we're remembering him and we're looking at different aspects of him. Today, I'm going to share with you an autobiography of Jesus. You know what an autobiography is, right? It's one written by the person themselves. You say, well, isn't the whole Bible is autobiography? Yeah, this is, but this is very specific. So turn with me, if you aren't already there, to Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke 4, we have an autobiography of Jesus. If you want to know what the real Jesus looks like, I'm going to show you. Because he says, this is, this is who I am. Luke chapter 4. Not only is this who I am, this is what I do. Begin with me down in verse 16. By the way, previous part of this chapter is the story of Jesus being led into the wilderness He's tempted for 40 days and he comes out of the wilderness. The scripture says he was led by the spirit into the wilderness. He came out of the wilderness in the power of the spirit. And he began speaking and preaching in Galilee. He's going to do most of his ministry in Galilee. And Galilee is the northern part of Israel. And then Samaria is in between. You remember Samaria. That's where he meets the woman at the well. Um, Samaria, Samaritans were hated um, by the Jewish people. They considered them a mixed race, a mixed breed. Um, and so they hated them. There was no love lost between Samaritans and Jews. So you have Galilee, you have Samaria, and then Judea, which is where Jerusalem was. And Jerusalem was the center of religion. It was, they were, they were upper class there. They were the religious elite. They were the spiritual elite, at least in their own mind. And so Jesus spends much of his time in Galilee um, in a part that's considered less than. Folks in Judea and Jerusalem would consider that the sticks. Those were their country cousins. Um, they, they didn't have a whole lot of respect for them. Plus, Galilee had a, Galileans had a unique way of speaking. But you see this um, at the day of Pentecost because they say, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? They could tell by their accent, you're not from here. It's kind of like a Texan going to New York City, all right? You can they open their mouth, you can tell, you're not from here, all right? And so you may be from the same country, but you're a different tribe, you're a different play, you're a different region. 
So Jesus is in Galilee and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's demonstrating and the power of God is at work in him and through him and miracles are being done and this word is going out in power and then he comes to a place called Nazareth, which is his hometown. It's where Jesus grew up. Nazareth, it is believed in that day, was probably 120 to 150 people. There are more people in this room this morning than in Jesus' hometown. So everybody knew everybody. And, and as you study, the, as archaeologists have studied, the, the belief is, is that about 100 years before Jesus, there was a group that uh, came back from, from Syria and, and Persia, uh, dispersed Jews, because about 538 B.C., Cyrus had given this decree that Jews were able to go back and settle in their homeland, and so they'd been coming over several hundred years. But a group came about a hundred years before Jesus, and it's believed that it was a branch of the line of David, and they settled in Nazareth. And you say, well, if they were of the line of David, why didn't they go to Jerusalem and make claim to the throne? Well, they didn't want to die, that's why, because there were the Hasmoneans, a whole different group, a whole different tribe, they were leading, they were ruling, if you will, under the Romans. And so it's like you didn't want to make it known that you were in the line of David because you were then a threat. They kill you. So they settled a long way from Jerusalem in what became known as Nazareth. And 120, 150, most of them related. So when Jesus, what we're about to read, when Jesus goes into church on the Sabbath, and he opens up the Bible, which is the Old Testament. The Scripture says a scroll from the book of Isaiah. And as he begins to read, he's reading to his relatives, his cousins, his aunts, his uncles, his more distant relatives. But everybody in town knew one another, and most of them were related. And Jesus begins to read, look with me, verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, so he was in the habit of doing this, he went to synagogue, he went to church on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. Now, it's interesting they handed him the scroll, and I've often wondered, Lord, why did they give you, of all the people there, why did they give you the scroll? I think Jesus read it well. I think the word, reading the word, was something they'd never heard before. He did it like nobody else. So it's like Jesus is in town, let him read it. He reads it like nobody else. So he begins to read in Isaiah. By the way, this is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, short text that he reads. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. The reason they were fixed upon him, according to Jewish tradition, this was the second reading that happened at synagogue, and it was usually accompanied by a teaching off of that passage. So they were expecting him, well, you read that passage, now there's going to be some teaching that you're going to give. He sat down, so they're all looking at him like, what are you doing, Jesus? They had their eyes fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now, that may not seem like a lot to you, but everybody in that room, every one of those Jewish people knew that Isaiah 61 was a messianic scripture. They knew as soon as Jesus started reading it, this is a prophecy of Messiah, of him coming. It was very popular. It was very famous. They all knew it. What they didn't know, what they had never heard, is what Jesus did when he sat down and he said, you know what I just read to you? It's fulfilled today. What is he saying? I am him. I'm Messiah. They, they thought, first of all, they talked to one and said, in their power, when he speaks and how, how he communicates, there, there's something unusual here. There's something we've never seen or heard before. But then he goes, but then someone else said, yeah, but this is Joseph's son. Remember the carpenter? We know this kid. We've watched him grow up. He's grown up right here. We know who he is. He's part of the family, if you will. And now he's claiming to be Messiah, and they didn't take it very well. And so the rest of the text says they decided they were going to take him to the edge of the city and throw him off a cliff. It's like, this is how we deal with people who claim to be Messiah. We'll see, if you're Messiah, you'll fly. We're going to throw you off the cliff. I love the text here. Sometimes I, I get irritated sometimes when I see portrayals of Jesus as, as wimpy. I don't know what he looked like exactly. I don't know his stature. don't know any of that. But he was not wimpy. Because the text says that they tried, they, this crowd were taking him to throw him off, and he just walked through the middle of them and walked away. Now, I want you to see there are 100 people or more maybe here gathered intent on throwing him off a cliff, and he just walks through the middle of them. It wasn't his time. They weren't throwing him off any cliff. It doesn't say he fought them or hit them. It just says he walked right through the middle of them. Now, I want to go back to 18 and 19, verses 18 and 19, because this is the autobiography. Jesus has already declared to them, this is who I am. This is what I do. Today, this is fulfilled. So I want us to see this. If you want to know who the real Jesus is, he just told us. Look at it with me, starting in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now look at the end of, or look at verse 19 with me, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those two are connected in my opinion. And they're both talking about one aspect of Jesus, which is salvation. He came to bring salvation. Period. He came to do that. He says, I came to bring salvation to proclaim good news to the poor. You're thinking, that's just people without money. That is not what he's talking about here. We shared this a couple years ago when we're going through the, the Beatitudes. There are two Greek word, primary Greek words for poor. One of them means the working poor. We would call them day laborers. They weren't destitute, but they earned every, they went out, they worked every day, they had money for that day, they could live. They lived day to day, all right? That was one term for poor, the working poor. But the term that Jesus uses here is a different word. This word means destitute, beggars. These were the people who, because of injury or disease or birth defects or whatever may have happened in their life, they were incapable of doing anything for themselves. So all they could do was sit and, and put a cup out and say, please help me. That's all they could do. And their life was dependent on, upon somebody having mercy or compassion on them and putting something in that cup because if no one put anything in that cup, they would die. They had no other hope. Jesus said, I came to preach good news to them, 
to those who recognize that apart from me, they will die. They have no hope. They have no way out. I brought salvation to them. By the way, if you think you're pretty good, you don't need Jesus. Because he only has one message. And that message is to those who realize that they will never, ever be good enough. That's the only message he has. If you want a different Jesus, I can't preach him to you. There is no other Jesus. That is his message. He said, I came to bring that message. And, and not just that I'm going to bring salvation to those who can't do anything for themselves. Which, by the way, from our American point of view, that's horrible. We think that's awful. We don't ever want to be in that position. And Jesus says, spiritually speaking, I want you all to be in that position. But he says, it's not just that I brought it to the poor. Look at verse 19. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The reason I believe this is connected with the first part uh, up in verse 18 where he talks about proclaiming good news to the poor is because in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, now is the acceptable year. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus is doing something here. He's saying, I brought this good news to those who could not help themselves, but before I came, it wasn't the acceptable time. Let me say it a different way. You couldn't be accepted before I came. Now that I'm here, now that I'm doing what I'm doing, you can be accepted. You are acceptable. I make you acceptable. Now is the time. Today is the day. If you don't know Jesus, by the way, it's the same message. Jesus' message to you today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day to receive him, to believe, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. You want to know who the real Jesus is? He came to bring salvation. That's who he is. That's part of our work. That's part of our calling as believers is to declare to others, Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And as Paul said, and I agree with, of whom I was chief. I don't come sharing it with somebody that you're lost and you need a savior because I think I'm better. I was worse than you. And Jesus saved me. He'll save you. Look what he says. He goes on. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The second part of Jesus, of his ministry, of what he does. By the way, he's still doing today what he did then. Here's where I think sometimes we go astray. Sometimes in our preaching of Jesus or our teaching of Jesus, we focus simply on the salvation part. Salvation is necessary. You can't have anything else without it. But Jesus is going to share some more here. He didn't stop there. He said, not only do I want to save you, but I want to deliver you. He says, he sent me to proclaim liberty. In other words, they're in bondage. They're, I want to preach liberty to the, or proclaim liberty to the captives. The word captive there literally means a prisoner of war who has been taken prisoner at the point of a spear. They are under guard. They are prisoners of war. They're POWs. I'm going to say something, and you've, you've really got to wrestle with this. You don't have to agree with me, but you've got to wrestle with this. I've been doing this long enough to know that you can have salvation from Jesus and still be a POW. Some of you today are here, and you have received Jesus as your Savior. You have believed that he is the only hope that you have, but you're still a POW. You've been taken captive by the enemy. And because of that, it doesn't salvation is still yours because you don't earn it. It's a free gift that we receive by faith. 
But the Lord says, I want to do more in your life than just save you. If all you want from Jesus is to go to heaven when you die and not go to hell, then that's fine as far as it goes. But there is so much more that he has for you. It's like somebody described me and saying, he's a redheaded guy from, with Irish descent. Okay, that's true. I'm a redheaded guy of Irish descent. But there's so much more to who I am than just that. There is so much more to Jesus than just that he wants to save you from hell so you go to heaven when you die. He says, I want to deliver you. I came to deliver you. How do you know you need delivering? Because you are in a place of bondage that you have tried and tried and tried to be free of, and you cannot be free. You have prayed. You've gone to classes. You've talked to people like me. And you keep going around the same place and you are in bondage. And you say, I prayed. And see, I did this young, earlier in my life. I got saved. I've told you this story before. I got saved hundreds of times. All right. I got saved over and over again because I thought I was lost because I was in bondage. And I needed to be delivered. But I didn't know anything about deliverance. I didn't know anything about being delivered. I didn't know that there were areas where I was giving ground to the enemy. And so because I was giving him ground, because I was giving him permission, he kept me a prisoner of war, captive. By the way, that's why we do, that's why that we, we, the Lord led us to build that section over there called the, the Freedom Wing. Because the space isn't important, but what happens in the space is where that you can, that you can be involved and engage with people just like you, because we're all in the same boat where we can learn and receive from the Lord the deliverance that he wants to give. I was talking to someone just this morning. They were talking about something that transpired in their home. And a clear work of the enemy. By the way, we do have an enemy. You understand that? He's not the boogeyman. He actually was an angel of light. Second most powerful and all of the kingdom, who said, I want to be like God, and was cast out, and a third of the angels with him. Lucifer, Beelzebub, the devil, all the terms that we use. It's not a TV show, and it's not funny, and it's not light. But I want you to know this. It's not scary either. He's not scary, because he's a defeated foe. I wouldn't want to take him on by myself. I wouldn't be that foolish but I'll take him on every day in the name of Jesus. Every day and twice on Sunday. He delivers. Jesus delivers. I wish I could dig deeper into this. I want to say this to you because I don't have time this morning. If you're in bondage and you know it, you believe that you're saved, you believe you've believed, you, you, you're pretty much settled in that, but you still are living in bondage in your life in some area and everything you've tried doesn't seem to work, would you be willing to talk to somebody, talk to one of us, and allow us to walk with you and to see, maybe, I'm not saying there is, but maybe there's an area where the enemy, he's been given ground, and he's holding you as a prisoner of war. Don't be ashamed, because he wants you to be ashamed. He wants you to think you're the only one who's ever done this. I promise you, you're not. Whatever it is, you're not the only one. I'm amazed. I, I had someone about a year ago came to me, and it took them 10 minutes to get out 
what it was they were struggling with. They had so much shame and so much guilt. And they, I mean, they physically were in agony just to say the words of what they were in. And when they got it out, I go, that's not so bad. And they're like, what? I heard way worse. All right. Again, there is no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. We all got junk. Okay. The enemy deceives. He lies to us. And then we go, and then we end up there, and we think, how did I get here? And then what does he do? After he lied to us and deceived us and got us here, then he accuses us and says, look at where you are. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's his modus operandi. He delivers. Jesus delivers. Notice the next one. Recovery of sight to the blind and, set and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I believe these two go together. I could be wrong. To me, this is inner healing. This is healing. Jesus saves. He delivers. He heals. All right? Recovery of sight, which means you once had sight, but now you don't have it anymore, to the blind. Now, some interpret this and would teach it, and I don't necessarily disagree with them. They would teach this as physical healing, that Jesus physically heals. I believe that. There are many passages that teach that. I'm not sure this passage is teaching that, but I could be wrong, okay? I, I wouldn't make a big deal out of it. I believe it's teaching a different kind of healing, an inner healing here, but Jesus does physically heal. I believe that. He's a healer. Matter of fact, Mark tells us that. He went around healing all their diseases. He heals physically. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says that He bore our sickness on the cross. Now, let me ask you. In 2 Peter, it says that He bore our sin on the cross. Do you believe that? Did He bear all your sin on the cross? Then why do we not believe He bore our sickness on the cross? Good, I'm glad. Now, Here's the problem, and I have wrestled with this. Some of you are sitting there, you're already ahead of me. You're thinking what I have wrestled with. If Jesus bore all our sickness on the cross, he forgave all of our sins, why isn't all of our sickness healed? I don't know. I don't know. I think that there are probably multiple answers to that question. But I don't know all the answers. I do know this. He heals. And he bore our sickness on the cross. And here's where the Lord has led me in all of this. And here's where I land on it. And Chris caught me as we were coming in. He said, you're going to sit today or stand? I said, well, we'll stand. Why? He said, well, your kid said you could barely walk. And <laughs> I told you they laughed at me all week. According to Katie's watch, we walked 41 miles and equivalent of 120 stories up and down because she, she, she's got that high watch thing. And Lori looked at me and she said, Troy, we don't do this in our normal life. Why don't we go on vacation and do this? <laughs> it's like, because we set a goal and we're going to accomplish that goal. If I have to drag this leg up that hill. We're going. But after the first national park, and we had five more to go, I was, I was in bad shape. I could barely walk. I have seen a doctor. They say, you know, their, their diagnosis, and that's all it is, is a diagnosis, not a prognosis, um, is that one day I'll probably need a knee replacement. I'm too young for knee replacement, and so I'm not doing it right now. Um, but I have done all kinds of, and please, some of you are going to come, and, I, and if you have a treatment, I'll, you know, I'll take it. 
I have done prolotherapy. I've had essential oils. I've had rubs and, and jerks and soaks and, you know, all of that. And all of it has had some effect, I think, one way or the other, good or bad. Okay, so if you've got a new one, okay, that's fine. Uh, but I've done many of those things. I'll tell you what the Lord has done for me in this, because we were driving along, and, and literally, and it was two or three days in, and, and I could barely walk, and Elizabeth's like, Dad, if we prayed, do you think God would heal your knee? And, and I thought, you know, sweetie, yes, I do believe that. And I said, here's something I'll tell you as we pray that I don't understand, because I have been prayed for a number of times through the years by different ones here, and plus myself. I've prayed for me, too. Um... And I have seen God give relief. As my, this morning I stand with you with very little pain. Very little pain. God has not chosen, for whatever reason, to completely remove it and fix it and make it as though it were new. I don't know why. He can. I believe he can. I know he can. I don't understand all that. I just keep going back to him because he heals. That's who he is. He heals. I don't have to understand it all. I don't know exactly how penicillin works. But you know what? If the doctor gives it to me and says, you got an infection, you need to, I'll take it. It's better than eating mold off of bread. I'll take it. Some of you think that's gross, but that's where it comes from. So anyway, I don't have to figure it all out to know that he's my healer. But I don't think that this passage is talking primarily about physical healing. I think it's talking about a healing that's even greater than the stuff on the outside that we get so focused on. He brings inner healing. He heals my soul. He, he heals my hopelessness. He heals my pain. That is so, that's the reason I believe it's connected with this next one. He sets at liberty those who are oppressed. Some of you your, your translation may say bruised. The word literally means shattered, broken in a thousand pieces, unable to put it back together. By the way, let me say this, because some of you, if you have a King James or a New King James, you say you're skipping one. Uh, but it's not in newer translations. It says he binds up the brokenhearted. The reason being is because some of the texts don't include that. Others do. The newer texts don't have it. Older texts do. Uh, as far as when I talk about that, manuscripts, Greek manuscripts. Uh, again, I don't think it's wrong for it to be in there because it fits in with all of these other things. He does. He binds up the brokenhearted. This is all part of that inner healing that he does. He restores my soul, David said. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He does something on the inside. He gives joy when I should have no reason for joy. He gives me hope when it seems hopeless. He gives me power from within when I should have none at all. He heals. He heals the brokenhearted. How do you know if you've been brokenhearted? Check right here. Put your fingers right here. Do you feel a pulse? That means you have a heart and it's been broken. If you have a pulse today, you've had a broken heart. I promise you. You will not sit here today and convince me you, your heart. Lauren, I watched it. I watched it happen on a shuttle at the Grand Canyon. A family there, four kids, uh, three boys and a girl. The youngest was a little boy. And the mom was sitting there with the daughter and the littlest one, the other one sitting over here. And, and we were sitting, our, family, our five were sitting across here. 
And of course, our kids are older than her kids. And the little one was poking at the girl and doing what little boys do. And so the mom looked over because Andrew's, you know, big as he is. And she goes, do they, do they eventually outgrow this? And I said, I'll let you know. All right. I'll let you know. That little boy, uh, he's about four. I immediately saw him. His face fell and he turned because we all laughed just like you did. And he walked over on the other side of his mom and he put his head down. And his mom's like, what? You know, she called him my name and he goes, you're making fun of me. She said, oh, no, sweetie, we're not making. His little heart was broken because he thought we were making fun of him. We weren't. But in his mind, in his understanding, he thought we were. He's four. Broken hearted. Every person you meet has a broken heart. Every person. The only question is, has, have they experienced any of Jesus' healing and the brokenness of their heart? That's the only question. So they have a broken heart. Has Jesus mended it in any way? Is he mending it now? I was 23 when I first saw this. 23, 24. Knew everything. 23, 24. I was a much better pastor then than I am now. All right. Because I knew it all then. I don't know anything now. And I was traveling. I was actually leading a group of young people because I was one of the oldest. And we, were, uh, we went to uh, Word of Life up in Scroon Lake, New York's Bible College. And we were there representing the ministry that we were all part of and doing seminars and different stuff. And as we were, and again, thinking, at least for me, I thought I knew it all. So we were here to impart all this great wondrous knowledge that we had for all of these, you know, dumb Bible college students. And, and so, and I wish I was making this up, but it's really probably more of how my heart felt. And I remember afterward, young man came in, he was 19 years old. And I'm 23, 24, so I'm, I mean, I'm thinking I have all the wisdom in the world. I'm four years, five years older than this guy, but I feel like I have all the wisdom in the world. And I sit down with him, and we began talking. He's talking about struggles in his life, and he clearly loved the Lord. He was a believer. He loved the Lord. He was there at Bible college. He wanted to follow the Lord and serve the Lord. But he was struggling mightily in his life. And, and he began to share some of those struggles. And I'm sitting there, and I immediately start thinking, well, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to have this discipline, you need to take care of this, you need to read more, memorize more, pray more, do, do all these things. And so I'm getting ready to lay it on him. You know, do this, do this, do this, and this. Not realizing the fact, he's already at Bible college, they're already telling him to do all that stuff. That's what Bible college does. And I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at it. That's what we do in the church. It's all we know to do. Just learn some more, study some more, pray some more. It'll fix all of that. It won't. It won't. I'm not saying we shouldn't read and study and pray. I firmly believe in all those things. But inner healing is something more. Inner healing is a, it's a, it's an interaction with the living God, with the living Christ at a level deeper than just your mind. And so we, I started to say all those things, and the Holy Spirit literally shut my mouth. I mean, literally just closed it. 
And I sat there and I immediately I had this thought. I knew it wasn't from me. I don't even know where it came from. I do now, but at the time I didn't. And this thought was, ask him if he feels guilty or responsible for his parents' divorce. That was what went through my mind. Well, I didn't even know his parents were divorced. I didn't know anything about his parents. I didn't know anything about him. I just met the guy. So, but I, I felt impressed strongly with this. And so I, I said, can I ask you a question? Do you feel guilty for your parents' divorce? He looked at me and he, I mean, tears literally shot out of his eyes and he laid his head on the table and he wept. He shook. He wept so hard. And he literally, I am not exaggerating, he created a puddle of tears on that table. It went, this went on for what seemed like five or ten minutes where he just wept and shook. And I sat there flabbergasted. I'd never seen anything like this and thought, oh Lord, what did I do? I broke him. And no, he was already broken. I just gave him permission to let it out. I just didn't know. I had no idea what I was doing. Which, by the way, I hope would give you courage and hope. To, you don't have to know what you're doing because the one who heals is Jesus, not you and me. He's the healer. He finally finished and he said, when I was 12 years old, my parents called me in and said, we're miserable. We hate each other. The only reason we're staying together is for your sake. And so we just feel like you need to make the decision. Do we divorce and be happy or do we stay together and be miserable? Can you imagine what we do as parents to children? And they probably thought they were doing the right thing. I don't know. And of course, like any 12 he's like, I don't want you to divorce, but I do want you to be happy. And he was just torn and all that. And he didn't tell them one way or the other, but they went ahead and divorced. And so for seven years, he carried the guilt. They're divorced because of me. Long story to shorten it up. We began to pray, and the Holy Spirit just kept giving me little thoughts, and we prayed this and prayed that. I didn't know anything about inner healing. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. I just figured you got a problem, you pray more, you study more, you read more of the Bible, memorize some scripture, it'll fix it. That's all I knew. That's all I'd ever been taught. That's what I was doing. And man, I was messed up. But Jesus met that guy that day. And I watched him do something in him. And I remember walking out of there, first of all, amazed at God. And secondly, saying, God, I want you to do for me what you did for him. Changed my, the course of my life. Fast forward eight years, Lori and I are sitting in an office in a different church here in town across the desk from John Regeer, and he asked a question led by the Holy Spirit very much like I did with that young man, and I did the very same thing. I burst in tears and laid my head down and sobbed. I hadn't cried since I was a kid. I was 32 years old. Jesus didn't just come to save you from hell. He came to deliver you from the power and the bondage of the enemy and to heal your soul. He came to do that. And there's one more. And I'm going to ask Lori and the others who are going to be singing, go ahead and come while I share this last one. It'll make me do faster. All right? 
One more. And I'm going to change places while they do that. I'm going to walk down. What's the fourth one? It says here, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He anoints. He saves. He delivers. He heals. And he anoints. He was anointed. The Scripture says that he was anointed by his Father. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says that at his baptism... The Spirit came down like a dove and settled on him. And then those around heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my, this is my beloved son. This is the son I love so much. In him I am so pleased. Listen to what he has to say. He anointed him. But what did John the Baptist say right before all this happened? See, we, we read that and think, oh, yeah, that was really cool. Wouldn't it be cool to be there when the dove came down or what looked like a dove? The Holy Spirit settled on Jesus and the fathers. But wouldn't that be really cool? What did John the Baptist say just before all this happened? He said, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to undo his shoe. He will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. He will baptize you. He will anoint you. Can I tell you my great concern for me and for you is that we would settle for mediocrity in our Christian life because we don't expect the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We don't expect that what the Father did for Jesus, Jesus does for us. That He not only gave us the Holy Spirit at salvation, who indwells us, but He continues to anoint us, to fill us to baptize us. To, I mean, there's all these different words. And I don't know what your church background is. I don't know where you came from. I don't know what you believe about any of that stuff. And I really don't care. All right? All I care about is this. The truth of God's word. The truth of what Jesus said is, I was anointed and I anoint. I anoint you to do what you could never do in your own strength. I want you to bow your heads with me. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you want the real Jesus? Not, not a made up one, not a pretend one, the real Jesus. And won't you ask him this morning? Thank him. If he saved you, thank him. If he hasn't saved you, if you've never asked him, then ask him. Hey, Jesus right now saved me. I'm a sinner. I am lost. I was born this way. I continue this. I can't do anything on my own to earn your forgiveness, to be worthy of your love. I can't do anything. You died for my sin. I believe that. And right now I receive you. I receive you as payment for my sin. I invite you into my life to be not only my Savior, but my boss, my Lord, to be in charge. Just ask Him. Use your own words. You don't have to use my words. Just invite Him in. Behold, He's standing there. He's waiting. He's called. He's inviting. 
Receive the invitation. If you are saved and you know what, you just thank him. Lord, thank you that you saved me. But do you need to be delivered? And why don't you acknowledge that, Lord, there are areas or an area of my life I need to be delivered. I'm in bondage. I'm a POW. I have anger I, I can't control. I do well for a while and then blow up. I have lust. I have addictions. I have substance abuse. I have whatever it might be. You say, well, is that going to keep me from heaven? No, not if you're in Christ. It just keeps you from living heaven now. It keeps you in bondage. It makes you a, a prisoner. And he wants to deliver you. He came. He said, I came to deliver you. And he say, is that all I have to do? You say, Lord, I want to be delivered. Start there. There may be other things and there may be steps that, that you need to take that I don't have time to go into right now. Catch one of us. Catch one of the staff. One of, catch one of our prayer partners. One of our elders. Catch one of our deacons. Somebody and say, hey, hey, if you don't know who to catch, go to Guest Central and say, I don't know who to catch. All right? But I need to talk to somebody. They'll help you catch somebody. He wants to deliver you. He wants to heal you, not only in body, but I think even greater healing, inner healing. He's your healer. He wants to heal your heart and anoint you with his spirit and work through you in ways you cannot even imagine for his glory, for your good, and ultimately for your greatest joy. I love the way John Piper says it. I am most satisfied. And he is most glorified when I am most satisfied with him. Jesus is most glorified when I'm most satisfied with him. Lord, we come to take the Lord's Supper today. And it just seemed that you were saying very strongly that you wanted to remind us again of who you really are. We don't take this lightly. That you didn't just die on the cross to save us, but you died to deliver us, to heal us, and to anoint us. There's so much more. Lord, there's more in this Christian life thing than I know, than I've experienced. I've tasted. I want more. I believe you died to give me more. Lord, as I take this today, as I take the bread, as I take the cup, I'm acknowledging I'm part of you and you're part of me. I'm in you. But Lord, there's more I want you to do in me. I would imagine for most of us, we would say the same thing. We're in you, but there's more of, that we want you to do in us. So Lord, we receive this by faith. We thank you. We thank you for what you're doing.
want you to look at me for just a moment. If you are a believer today, you don't have to be a member of this church, but if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, you believe in Jesus Christ and trusted him for the salvation, for your salvation, then you can participate. We encourage you to participate in the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member here. Um, if you're not, then I would encourage you maybe to wait and talk to someone before you do that, simply because this is represent, a representation of a fact that I have entered into faith in Jesus Christ. And he's now Lord of my life and I'm following him. And if that's not true for you, you don't want to do anything that's not true. And so I would encourage you to wait until that time. Uh, if you have children with you today and, and you're not sure exactly where they are, but they want to take it, I often tell parents or grandparents, whatever, don't sweat that. Just allow them to go ahead and participate and continue to have conversation with them about what this really means. Don't want to make a big deal or embarrass them or hurt their heart in all this process either. All right? Just continue to have conversations with them about why we do this and what it means. It means that we believe that Jesus died for us, that he rose from the grave, and that we have entered into the life that he offers, and we take it together. And it's represented in the Lord's table. Lord, I thank you that we have the privilege to be able to do this, and I thank you that you save, deliver, heal, and anoint. I thank you that's who you are. I thank you, Jesus, that both on that day and this day, the real Jesus stood up. And we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.